If you don't have a handout this morning, there are handouts available. One of the men will bring those to you. Uh, so if you don't have a handout, if you want to raise your hand, all of the, the passage references I'm going to make this morning will be on there. Uh, this handout also has all of the notes from last week's message uh, for the membership series. This morning we are going to start uh, on page five of that. And we are going to move now looking at what does that mean, what we talked about last week, for us as FBC Menifee. Let me just give you a brief refresher on what we talked about last week. We looked at two points. Point number one, all Christians are called by God as individuals to be members of the body of Christ and to function together by the power of the Spirit. So first we looked at all Christians are called as individuals according to God's mercy, that they all belong to him, they've been called by him, and they are defined by him as part of the body of Christ. They're created in him to be a uh, functioning member of that, empowered by the Spirit. So what does it mean if you are called as an individual to be a member of the body, to function together by the power of the Spirit? Uh, Is that ambiguous? Is that just all Christians universally are part of this, so you're just a Christian kind of randomly functioning in society, doing your best to glorify God. And we looked at number two, membership in Christ church is not ambiguous. It is specific. It is specifically designed by God that we are members of his body and we function together as his body according to his design that he created in love for us. And so we looked then at uh, the passages pointing out the direct function of the church in that we are all gifted to function together and so we must function together. The direct design of the church that Christ being the head of the church has left the church to be cared for by shepherds and teachers, uh, elders over a church served by, we didn't look at but we will in future weeks, served under the example of deacons and then all serving in the church for the glory of God. We finished last week looking where I want to draw your attention this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, looking at verses 19 through 25, is kind of a projection point for the next three weeks. So if you look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to love one another and stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we thank you that you are faithful and good. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who we can trust in all things. We thank you for the grace of the gospel. Uh, We thank you for your faithfulness in that. We thank you that you have not left us to just know that, but you have left us to live uh, accordingly, that you have left us commands and clarity and what it means to live for you. Pray that you would give grace to us this morning as we seek to understand that, 
as we seek to know that. I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would long to be surrendered to your will more and more, uh, that you would continue the work of reconciliation that you have accomplished in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to continue working through this passage. So I just want to point you to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, looking specifically at verses right now, 19 through 21. Look back again at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. And what, what I want you to notice is what he is saying. The author of Hebrews is saying, Therefore, because of everything that has been said, and what has been said is that Christ is supreme, that the gospel is the only hope, that Christ has been sent and he is better than the old covenant system, that Christ is the promise of the old covenant and he has come, and now what? Therefore, because we have confidence to enter the holy places, because we have confidence to live before God, because we have confidence in salvation. Why? Because by the new covenant, the way opened by His flesh, because the blood of Jesus has paid, that we have a high priest who is a mediator, who goes to God for us. Because of that sacrifice... We ought to live a specific way. He says, therefore, because all these things, and there are then three statements. If you notice the way that the authors of Scripture often use, and uh, many people would use, is repetitive nature to highlight things. And so when he says in this statement, three things, he highlights those three things with the same phrase. Do you see what the phrase is there? Let us. He says, let us. Look at the beginning of verse 22. He says, let us. In verse 23, he says, let us. In 24 again, he says, and let us. He is highlighting three things we must consider if the gospel is our hope. If our relationship is divined by Christ and that he and his blood has paid for us, that we can go to God, that we have a high priest who has made a sacrifice and is our mediator, that we can have relationship with Christ. If it is true that our lives are defined by relationship with Christ, there should be three things that that affects from this passage. Let us think about our direction. Let us think about our doctrine. And let us think about our devotion. That is how I've summarized these three things last week. And I just want to bring your attention to that again over the next three weeks. We're going to look then for us as FBC, what is our direction this week? And next week, what is our doctrine? And then the last week, what does that mean for our devotion? And so I'm going to use this as an outline for the next three weeks as we continue in the membership series. So let me point with you again at verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. This is, let us set our direction towards God. Let us draw near. Let us go toward Him. Let us pursue Christ. Let us live for Him. Why? Because of the gospel. He gives reasons. We can do so with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We do not live in guilt. We live in freedom from sin. Freedom to live in Christ because of the gospel. So that must change our direction. Let us not be those who are far off. Let us not be those who live away from Him. But let us be those who have our direction set toward Christ. And all Christians would agree with this, right? 
If you are living for Christ, what does that mean? Christ is your focus. He is the center. You are living your life to head towards Him. Second, your doctrine. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to, let us with a grip, with a assurance, with a, a lack of willingness to let it go, our confession, our statement of truth, what is the truth. And we're to do so without wavering. And then there's an amazing statement here. For who, he who promised is faithful. What is the confession of our hope? It is the promises of God. It is what He has said. It is the Word of God. And so we hold fast our confession, the promises of His grace and hope, the Word of God, because He is faithful. And so our doctrine is defined by the Word of God, and we hold fast to doctrine, to truth, because God, who promised through the Word, is faithful. And then lastly, our devotion. Verse 24 Because of the gospel, let us draw near to Christ. Let us pursue God. Let us hold fast to the truth. Let us not waver from the truth because God is faithful. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then I'm going to intentionally skip the next statement, not because you skip things in the Bible, but because I'm going to go back to it because it's a preface. So look at 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the positive, right? So let us, what are we to do? We are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're to spend our time, our devotion is, how do I stir up other Christians to love and good works? How do I look at the people of God, the members which Christ has called, and stir them to love and good works? How do I encourage them all the more as I see the day drawing near? That is the commands of what are you to live? What should be your relationship to the people God has called? You should live to stir them to love and good works. And you should look to encourage them all the more as you see that Christ will return. Okay? So those are commands of faith. In the middle of that, we see a command of repentance. There is a negative here. How can you be sure if you are not doing this? If he says you are to live, to stir up one another to love and good works, to encourage one another all the more as Christ will return, how do you know if you are failing to do so? It's dead center. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. It's interesting that here as he defines what your relationship to the body of Christ should be, that you should be encouraging them. You should be loving them. You should be pushing them because you know Christ is coming. All Christians would live for this, right? And the statement in the middle is, how do you fail to do this? You neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. So often people think the church is a hindrance to this. We talk about modern times and you know, that the, the culture has left the church and all of these things. I want to assure you, I hope you were encouraged last week, Christ has not left his church. Christ builds his church. The culture does not define the church. The gospel defines the church. And his encouragement is that if you are called to love one another, to stir up one another, to love and good works, and if that is to be your goal and to encourage one another all the more until Christ draws near, the failure to do this is neglecting 
the gathering. I want to point out to you the clarity of this word, the gathering, too, because you might say, neglecting to meet together, I kind of randomly meet people, right? I meet people, I meet Christians all the time, I see Christians when I'm here or there, I have lots of Christian friends, that's kind of the church to me. The church is very specifically defined in Scripture, as we looked at last week in the the order and function of that. We'll look in the future, the church has specific descriptions of what they're to do. Many say when two or three gather together, that's the church. Uh, In one sense, and you'll be surprised and excited when we get to that passage of what it means when two or three gather together. But as we looked last week, the church is defined by the leadership Christ has appointed for the function of his body, that all live together doing this to love one another, to stir one another, to love and good deeds, to encourage one another all the more until Christ come. And when it says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. If you have a a New American Standard Bible, it translates it this way. Not neglecting the assembly of ourselves. If you have a, a King James or a New King James, I believe the translation is our own assembling together. The word here is a a statement of a gathering, not random gatherings. It's a direct statement. It has a direct article. And so it says this is the gathering. This is the assembly. Don't neglect the gathering, the people that assemble together. This is what the Greek word means. It's what the early church considered it to mean. It's what God in his divine purpose and promise wrote in the Greek language. It's what's communicated to us even if you don't speak Greek as you read the whole Bible. This is a specific people you are to function with and to be part of. It's not random. The relationship to Christ equals relationship to his church. And I just wanted to briefly show you that again here from Hebrews. And then now again, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at if that is what this says, that our direction should be towards Christ, that our doctrine should be rooted in his faithful promises, and our devotion should be to the people of God because we know Christ is coming. That's a serious commitment. That that is a serious relationship. That's not casual. That's not something we just take lightly. And I don't think many Christians take that lightly. Even if you don't practice uh, church membership in the way that we do, that we practice an official church membership, uh, we have clarity of who are members with us, who is defined with us, that they're pursuing that. We do that for a purpose. We believe these commands to be serious. And we want to function in these commands seriously. We want to be after it. But we also know that means that's a pretty committed relationship for people right? For you to say, I am a member of this church. I will function with this church. And in three weeks, we'll get to the members covenant. It's online. You could look at it now, but there are specific statements of, I will pursue Christ in this way together with this body for the glory of God. It's affirming these things saying we will do these things because we seek to have clarity on our direction. We seek to have clarity in our doctrine. We seek to have clarity in our devotion because we believe the commands of God are serious and we want to hold one another accountable to those as we are commanded. And so formal membership is a way to pursue that. The necessity of formal membership, I think, demands for all churches to be very clear about what they believe, to not be shallow and ambiguous. Generally, and this is very general, 
but generally, churches that practice a shallow, ambiguous membership also practice a shallow and ambiguous declaration of what they believe. They have a very brief statement that's good and true, but not very deep, because it seeks to be inclusive of as many people as possible, rather than as clear about the truth of the gospel as possible. There is a assumed humility in that, and that we're not going to say all of these things. We're, we're not going to take a stance to say, this is true, and this is true, and this is true. That would be arrogant. We're going to be very broad in general. And I understand the appearance of humility, but I, I think there is also in that an assumption that God has not been clear. There's an assumption that God has not communicated in such a way that we can't have greater clarity than seven sentences about the whole Bible. The church has historically given clear statements about their beliefs, not because the Bible is unclear, because the Bible is comprehensive. The Bible is very clear, and it is very big. The statements therein are broad and cover everything. And to have clarity specifically would take real communication. For you as a church to know where we stood on every doctrinal issue would take our entire lives to work through together. But we hold particular documents not as the word of God. This is the only sure and true authority on earth. This is our doctrinal statement in one sense. This does not change. This is the hope which we hold to. This is the faithful promises of God. But the church has historically, not known to some Christians, communicated in briefer statements their beliefs for the sake of unity and clarity together. So historically, these are called confessions. Many denominations, many groups wrote confessions. They wrote summary statements of their beliefs so they could have clarity together. As a church, we are not, if you're familiar with these terms, we're not a confessional church. We don't take good and faithful confessions like the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which was written primarily off of the Westminster Confession that was a Presbyterian confession that just messed up on baptism. So the London Baptists were smart and they just went, hey, you guys did a really good job. You're super confused about baptism. Can we just borrow your whole statement and then change all the things where you're confused? Sure, let's do that. So that's where the London Baptist Confession came from. Many churches have statements and confessions. Every church should have a confession of faith. And we would say that is a doctrinal statement. We have been accused often of being those who have too big of a doctrinal statement. And we are not offended by that. We are confused because we think it's too small. It needs more clarity. No, it's good. It's just right. So our doctrinal statement is about 45 pages. And and it communicates through that in outline where we stand in doctrine. For the purpose of clarifying, so you when you come to us and you go, what do you believe? We don't say things like, I just believe everything the Bible says. Good, me too. So I want to understand, do you believe what I believe about what the Bible says? That's the kind of clarity we need together. It's the kind of clarity that Christians are called to. It's the kind of clarity that holds fast the confession not holds it loosely and says, eh, I can know a few things about it. 
And so as we work through all of these documents, our purpose statement, our principles in which we want to carry those out, and our doctrinal statement in where we would hold firm, it is for the purpose of holding fast together. We are not communicating, and the reason we are not a confessional church, if we were to adopt the London Baptist Confession as our confession, you can't just edit the London Baptist Confession, right? As elders, we can't sit down and go, you know what? I think they got that wrong. I understand the London Baptists did that to the Presbyterians. They said, hey, they got that wrong. Let's just re-edit it for our own purpose. At this point, it's the London Baptist Confession of 1689. You don't just edit a document from 1689 and go, eh, we'll just do what we want. So we have a doctrinal statement that is a confession. It is the confession of what we as elders, as a church, as members, we agree. This is what we think the truth of God proclaims. This is what we will teach from the Word of God. You, you should not be surprised every Sunday when I stand up and teach the Word of God that I'm teaching from the Word of God. You should all know, also not be terribly surprised what I find to be true in the Word of God because it is the same truth from all time. And it should also not flip-flop all over the place very loosely because the Word of God is able to be defined. It is clear and true. And so as members look at our doctrinal statement, they have an assumption that I'm going to teach in accordance with the word and that we believe that our statement is for the purpose of keeping us in accordance with the word, encouraging us in that. So I make those statements to clarify why we do that. Christians are all over the map. Part of the beauty and the difficulty of American Christianity and Protestantism is we're kind of all over the map when it comes to ideas, when it comes to beliefs, when it comes to what we value and what is important. Though we can make broad statements together about the hope of Christ and who we are and where we're headed, we're very broad in everything else. We tend to apply uh, a lot of individualism to our faith. And we want to be very clear. We want, as you think about membership, we want you to be clear and understand what are you getting yourself into. That you should not commit in any relationship with true and faithful commitment without clarity of what that means. And so we're not saying, hey, you've got to be a member of our church because uh, we are the church. But what we're saying is if you plan to be with us, if you plan to attend, if you plan to pursue Christ, if you agree and believe that Christ is your focus, that you are living to draw near to him, that you want to hold fast the truth and you want to be devoted to his church for his glory because we proclaim him until he returns, we would encourage you to make that clear, to define the relationship, to pursue it with us, to be serious about it, not to keep it ambiguous. Many people are committed and faithful to their church in word, and then they ghost Indeed, They're there Sundays for years. They're coming faithfully. And then all of a sudden they disappear. And nobody knows where they went. And nobody's pursuing them. And, and they might be complaining about that or upset about that, but they just bailed. They, they weren't in a relationship that was committed. Right? You ghost your parents... What do your parents do? They call you. Where are you? Where are my grandkids? Where have you been? I'm after you. Right? Your parents ghost you. You're like, where are you? You need to babysit your grandkids. Where have you been? It's a committed relationship. You can't just bail on it. 
But so often the church that is supposed to be a family is such an undercommitted relationship. You, you define your relationship by where you show up on a Sunday and how you feel about the time you were there. Rather than you are committed to a body of people because you have a central purpose to draw near to Christ and pursue Him in all things. Christian, your relationship to the church should not just be an occasional appointment with a few people to be encouraged from the Word of God. It should be a committed direction to pursue Christ with all you are because you know what you are pursuing. You know what you're after. Christians should have a clear direction. And so this morning, with the remainder of our time, I want to encourage you through what we call our purpose statement and principles that are to define our general direction. Each of these will become more and more specific as we detail them out. First, looking at our direction as a church. What do we believe the purpose of the church to be and how are we generally seeking to pursue that? Next week, looking at the doctrine, specifically the doctrine of the church, what do we believe the church is designed to do, and how does that function together with one another? And then lastly, uh, in our devotion to the church, our devotion to Christ communicated by our relationship to one another in pursuit of Him, what do we promise to be faithful to together for the glory of Christ, for the good of our own lives, and the good of His body in his kingdom. So look with me first. If you have a handout with you, if you want to turn to page five of your handout, uh, this is cut from portion of our doctrinal statement or what we call uh, what we teach statement, WWT statement. It's not a wrestling federation. It is what we teach uh, so the one that you will receive is what we teach, 2019, uh, the, the, the latest version. Nobody's copying us. We're not copywriting anything, but that's the last time as elders we edited it and looked at it. And so what we teach, uh, 2019, gives a statement of first our purposes and priorities and then all of our doctrine. And at the end of that, uh, contemporary issues of the church and how we respond to and seek to glorify God in those. So that's what you'll see in that document. Again, this morning, looking at our broadest directions, the purposes and priorities of our church. So look with me first. Our two priorities, our two purposes rather, would be the praise of God and the proclamation of the gospel. So in the broadest sense, we believe the purpose of the church is the praise of God and the proclamation of the gospel. While many churches would be described as, you know, we're an ER, we're here to serve sick people, uh, we're here to bring them in and, and we're to serve them, and that's our priority. Uh, that is, I understand that's a good and faithful priority as a church. It's not the purpose of the church. Uh, the, so the, surf, the church does serve people, it serves one another, we encourage one another, we stir one another, but the purpose of the church is the glory of God. We don't gather together, first and foremost, uh, to to do an evaluation of where you're at and what you need. We gather together first and foremost to praise God and glorify Him because that's what all creation is for. I want to encourage you as members and those considering membership, when you think about, should I go to church today, you should not consider, do I need to be there? You should consider, is God worthy to be worshipped by His people together? Yes. Yes, He is. And therefore, you should be there. You should worship him. Jesus said that even if we did not, even if people did not, what would happen? The rocks will cry out. 
Christian, don't go, you know what? If I'm not there, the rocks will cry out with them. It's okay. I just got these other things going on. No, live for the purpose of all creation. We exist first and foremost for the praise and the glory of God. Under that first statement, the body of Christ is intended to proclaim the excellencies of God. That is the written statement on our What We Teach document. And so I'm giving that to you so you can look at it. You can also get the What We Teach document and see it there and find that there. I'm not going to read that this morning, uh, but in the same heart as that, I want to remind you that all creation exists for the praise and glory of God. It is the purpose of all things. Everything exists to praise and bring glory to God. Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It was created to declare it. Psalm 19.1, sorry, I said 119. Psalm 119 says it in lots of other areas too, but Psalm 19.1. Romans 11.36 and Colossians, which we looked at last week, both point out for For him and through him and to him are all things and his glory forever. I want to point you to our scripture reading this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Why did God save you? For what reason did God save his people? Look at that passage as it's on your handout. And I want you to notice those areas that are highlighted by being bolded. They are proclaiming the praise and the glory of God. Why did God do this? Well, it starts with blessed to the praise of God, to the glory of God, our father through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why did he choose us? That we would be holy and blameless before him. Praise God because he called us and blessed us in Christ for the very purpose that we would be holy before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So because of his will, he did this. Why did he do this? To the praise of his glorious grace, that he would be glorified. His grace to you in salvation is purposed that he would be praised for it, that he would be brought glory. And in that grace, he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Why? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. For him. It's about him. It's for his glory. Your salvation, the uniting of all people under God, the uniting of Jew and Gentile, called and worshiping and praising him forever, is for his glory. It's to the counsel of his will that it might be to the praise of his glory. Look with me at verse 12. It says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory. In him you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As we looked at last week, the plan of God to call you, why was it? For the praise of his glory. 
Christ redeeming you, that you would be a member and a part of His body. Why was it? To the praise of His glory. The Spirit given to you that you would be guaranteed, affirmed as Christ, gifted for the sake of His glory and His body. And why was it? For the praise of His glory. All things exist for the praise of His glory. And the church too exists, not for many reasons the earth uh, desires for it to exist. It exists for Him, for His praise, and for His glory. First and foremost, the purpose of the church is the praise of God. His church is to be the highest point of His praise. Look at page 6 on your handout. His church is to be the highest point of praise. His church is to be the pinnacle on earth in which His praise is made clear. If all things exist for His glory, His church is the place where His glory is to be declared and played out and shown on earth. We looked at that last week in Colossians. That all things were created through Him and for Him and in Him. All things exist. And why do they exist? For Him. For His glory. All authorities. All things are under Him. And what is it that declares Him glorious? That He is the head of His church the firstborn in all creation, because He has died and risen again, the image of God declaring His glory. 1 Timothy says this is the purpose of the church. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy says, I'm writing you this letter for, for what purpose? If I delay that you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You might know how how to behave in the church of God, the people of God, the gathering, the assembly of God which is the church, the assembly of the living God. And what is the church? It is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. It is the defense and the declaration. It adorns the world with the truth of God. It holds fast to the confession. The same things we saw in Hebrews. The church is to be what lives for God's glory, declaring that He is faithful and true. And in John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What does that mean? That means the function of the church, that we are to encourage one another, to equip one another, to wait for Christ to return. All of the one another's we looked at last week would be fulfilled where? in the assembly of the church. The people of God living for the glory of God. It is both in the most simple acts of your life and declared in the function of all of His people together as the church and functioning together in local churches. It's the simplest act of your life, as is commanded by Paul. He says no matter what you're doing, as he talks about Christians seeking to get along despite differences, he says what should be your consideration? The glory of God. And he says as he deals with the most simple things that would divide people, what you eat and drink, right? So many things divide us. Praise God, the Word of God goes to what seems like even the simplest. How could food and drink divide you? And yet we can still be divided over such things. And he says, how do we function in that? And he makes this statement in the middle of it. He says, so whatever you drink or whatever you eat, do all to the glory of God. What is his statement? Eat whatever you want. Put every satisfying thing in your life and then say, I do that to the glory of God. 
right? Many of us want to live this way. We want to put in whatever we want in life and find a way to justify that we are doing that for the glory of God. But in the context of this passage, he's saying, whatever you eat or drink, whatever decision you have to make for the glory of God, let what you eat or what you drink be to the glory of God. Let it be about that. It's not calling in your freedom to do all things to the glory of God. It is declaring your freedom to submit to him in all things. And that even in the simplest things of your life, even where you must sacrifice, you do so to the glory of God. At the simplest level of your life and collectively all of us together as the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2 where it speaks of Jew and Gentile being brought together. That we are all united. It says that we are to be joined together. The whole structure growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That in him we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And so why does the church exist? What should be the declaring statement that causes us to first filter everything by? The glory of God. Our first question should not be, does this satisfy the people of our church most? It should be, does this bring God glory? Is this for His glory and His praise? Like I said last week, it is not wrong to think about what expresses love to people. When it becomes wrong is to ignore the commands of God because people believe that would express love to them. The first and foremost purpose of the church is the praise and glory of God. The second is the proclamation of the gospel. Because in God's design, the gospel is the platform in which his glory is declared. All creation exists in order for God to play out the magnificent glory that is the gospel. God was not required to make anything, but in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And we know from Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundations of the earth, what did he do? He predestined his church, despite their sin and rebellion, despite he knew what creation would do. He purposed in creation for the gospel to be the declaring fact of his glory to all things. The purpose of the church is to declare the glory of God and the purpose that Christ made the church for in the gospel is to declare his glory. And so as a church, our first purpose is the glory of God. We believe him and his directive that the gospel is the proclamation of his glory. And therefore we exist to also proclaim the gospel. This affects the purposes of our church. We have only been reminded of it more this year. We we need the gospel to be our center declaration. The gospel is our purpose in proclamation. We are surrounded on all sides with all kinds of ideas. All kinds of priorities, all kinds of things people say to us and to you and to everyone, you can't be silent about this. Christian, is there anything in your life, anything in your life, you promote and proclaim more than the gospel? When you think about what you declare, Is the filter by which you go, I want my life to be about the glory of God 
And I want it to communicate in every way possible the gospel of Christ because it is the declaration of the glory of God. This has been a helpful reminder to us this year. We, we know that all of Scripture says that, but as we purposed in setting out as a church plant, we purposed to say we want to live because we believe the Bible says for the glory of God. And God has declared His glory through the gospel, and we want to proclaim that. And this year, more than any year in our deep history of six years, we have been reminded the gospel is our message. We will proclaim it And anything else that comes from our mouths, let it not be a distraction. Let it be very secondary, if mentioned at all, to the glory of God through the gospel, because that is his message. And so as a church, this is our general purpose. This is a general direction. I do not believe that any Christian would disagree with me in these statements. That's probably very uh, wanting to believe all things and, and love hopes all things. There might be some. But I think as Christians, we can generally affirm that. We live for the glory of God and we live to proclaim the gospel. If churches have other purposes, I would declare to you, flee from them. If they have some purpose on earth other than the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel, flee from those churches. They don't have to write it the way we wrote it out. But if they go to the Bible and they say God's first priority is not his own glory because he is worthy to be worshipped, we should be concerned. If you go to a church and you say the gospel is not the primary message of the church, it is not what should direct all of our communication, all of our function, all of our life. It's not what should be the centering point to anything we choose to do. You should leave. I don't think you should ghost them. I think you should tell them. This is why I'm leaving. I don't feel like this is our purpose. And maybe they'll explain. Maybe you just misunderstood. Christians are to come together when there's offense and confusion. And maybe it'll be that that's not their purpose. Maybe God has other plans for you. But if you are part of Faith Bible Menifee, I want to, I hope, comfort you with. Uh, And maybe you hear it as a warning. And if it's a warning to you, then I would recommend flee because we're not changing these facts. We live For the glory of God. And we communicate that as the first and only message of the church, the gospel of Christ. The only agenda we have is the glory of God through the gospel of Christ because we believe that is his agenda. But that is a very broad statement, is it not? It's easy to say that. I think we all would say that. When it becomes hard, uh, we have learned even as elders this year, is when there are particular decisions that must be made in life of how are you going to function then? If the glory of God is your purpose and the proclamation of the gospel is your message, and so we live to display his glory through the proclamation of the gospel, how are we going to seek to live that out? Well, as a church, we have written priorities in seeking to live that out. The priorities uh, are in an acronym. The acronym is HERALD. HERALD. We, up until this point, have not had any man in our church, or woman for that matter, named Harold. So we've been okay. Uh, We don't point at any person and say, Harold is our priority and our points. Uh, It's also spelt differently. This isn't Harold as in the man. This is Harold as in the ancient proclaimer of news, right? This is what you seek to do on Facebook, right? You go on Facebook to Harold. 
You have found what you believe is important and you herald it to the nations. This is an ancient herald. This is social media of the ancient world that there would be a herald, a runner. And when there was war, when there was victory, when there was good news, when there was bad news, there would come a herald from the king or the ruler. And he would come and he would proclaim the message. In times of war, that herald would run to your city and say, we have been victorious. We will remain the city we are. Or the herald might come running in. You have been conquered. You will be the slaves of. The herald was an important new source uh, declarer of the truth, of the power and authority that was. And we as Christians are to be heralds. We chose the acronym herald uh, in trying not just to be clever, but to be clear, to have something uh, memorable, something that we could think of often to point back and say, okay, are these our purposes? Something we uh, recognize and look at. Last year we did a podcast as elders through the points of herald. And before those meetings, we'd discuss them and decide what we wanted to do. It was at that point we changed R in herald from restoration or restoring relationships to reconciling relationships because we felt like that was more clear on the purposes of what God has called us to. And so again, these are not statements of truth with authority. These are statements of clarity so we know where we're headed as a church. And so herald is the way in which we seek to live out our priorities or our purposes, the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel. So let me point you first uh, to the H in herald. Herald the gospel. Uh, We're not that clever, so it's just the same word. Herald, the first point of it is to herald the gospel. Reemphasizing the point that is already our purpose. Our primary purpose is what? To proclaim the gospel of Christ. Herald is our first point because we believe you must herald the gospel. We want to be clear the proclamation of the gospel is not just my job. It's not just your job. It is all of our jobs. We function as a church to proclaim and to herald the truth of the gospel. It is the direction and the way that we check our direction is first to say, are we living as heralds of the gospel? Do we live to herald the truth of the gospel? The gospel is not news, or rather it is news. Uh, It is not advice. The gospel is not like other religious ideas. There are many people who want to give you religious ideas. Uh, They want to tell you, for your spiritual health, you need to do these things. It is pragmatics. It is saying you will be spiritually unhealthy if this regular activity is not part of your life. Uh, That might be true. It might not be true. That is spiritual advice of man. The gospel is not spiritual advice. It is not God declaring to man, your life will be better, and I think you should listen to me by living by these points. The gospel is a heralding. It is a proclamation. Sin is a declaration of war. You have declared war against the creator of all things by living in sin. You have chosen to live in deceit and rebellion. You have chosen, though you know by creation it exists for his glory, to do what you know he has commanded you ought not to do. And he has won the war. The war is His. It was never in question whose it would be. He is the creator of all things and all things exist for Him. All things exist for His glory. 
And He has won the war and all things will exist for His glory. He has proven it in the death of His Son. And you would think, how can a death prove that you have had victory in a war? Because the victory is over death. Because of your sin, you are headed in a particular direction. And that direction is death. And outside of Christ, when you meet death, you will face the wrath of God. Because you have lived as a rebel before Him. But Christ has come and declared victory over that war. Though death reigns, Christ is risen. He lives and proclaims to all creation, death is not your master. Death does not own you. You live thinking death owns us all. It's the only inevitable thing. And God has proclaimed, I was the creator of life and life and death are in my hands. And Christ is risen. Death has been defeated. And you would think, but we still die because there still will come judgment. And those who are in Christ, those who are His, those who live for Him, those who hear the herald and the Spirit of God works in them, that they repent and live in Christ by faith. They have victory over death because He has paid their penalty. Their sins are covered. Their rebellion is no more. Even if today you realized the war against God is sin and you sought out to say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. You were enslaved to sin in such a way that you cannot overcome it without His grace. And even if from this day forward you could live in perfection, you have already brought yourself such a debt in sin. You could never repay it. But the grace of Christ is that He has made atonement. The message is clear. The King has won the war, and He has won the war by dying for His people. He has paid the penalty of their sin so that they will forever live to His glory and praise. So we proclaim the truth of the Gospel. It is not about satisfying your earthly desires. It is about fixing the reality of the problem of your rebellion. And it is done for the glory of God. And so as a church, we live to be heralds of the gospel, not in advice, in absolute authority under God. The gospel is true. It is not a recommendation of how you ought to live. It is a declaration of what has been done and you must respond because you will suffer the consequences. Whether you respond or not, death will come. But death is defeated. The war is over. Christ has declared victory. And so we hold fast. We proclaim that. We proclaim it to all people. If you look at your handout under Herald, it is clear there's no distinction. There's not the Jew and the Greek under God's grace. The Messiah promised to Israel is the Messiah for all people. And so we live to declare that message to who? All people. That they might respond. That they would believe in Him. And Romans 10 tells us, how will they hear? How will they know? One must do what? Preach the gospel. And how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. It's speaking of a herald. How beautiful is the one who runs to you and says, The war is over and you are no longer a slave to sin. You are an heir to the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
because sin and death have been defeated. He knows you lived as a rebel and He is merciful and gracious. No longer must you live in the domain of darkness. These are all biblical terms describing the truth that His declaration changes everything. You are His. And so Christian, it is our belief that you ought to speak that at all times. And I say that meaning your life should be a reflection of that at all times, right? It is often said, we preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. It's It's a poor statement. The gospel is words. It is a declaration of what has done. Nobody is going to see you and go, I think God who created all things sent his son to die on the cross to pay for my sins that I could be forever an heir of Christ, live with him, with the people, for eternity to the glory of God because of the proclamation of the gospel. How do you know that? Because I watched you help that old lady across the street and then it was just like, bam, the gospel's real. No. You must proclaim the gospel always in word and deed. You must live that the gospel is always declared. But the gospel is not declared by your actions only. It is declared in word. And I'm thankful for Paul's prayers to the church that he prays twice. Let me have your prayers that I might do two things. That I might speak the gospel clearly and boldly. It's interesting that Paul writing these letters around the same time requested two different churches to, re- to pray for him for the same thing, proclaiming the gospel with two different ways, clarity and boldness. He says, let me be clear. He, he asked the Colossians, and I, I don't know why Paul, by the Spirit, chose to ask for two different uh, functions of this. He is praying that they would help him to, and pray that he would do the same thing to proclaim the gospel. But he asks the Colossians to pray for his clarity. He says, pray for me that it might be clear. Pray for me that I would make it clear. And then he says, as I ought to speak, as I am obligated to speak it, as a herald of the king, the message must be clear. He who changes the message of the king is a traitor to the king. It must be clear. You are obligated to make the gospel clear. And so Paul prays. That is a weighty responsibility. He says, pray for me that I would be steadfast, that I would open God's word to people, that I would declare the mystery of Christ that has put me in prison. Right? Paul's not saying, hey, let's not be as clear because we don't want to suffer hatred of people. He's saying, I'm in prison because I've been clear about the gospel. Pray that I continue to be clear about why I'm in jail. Pray, because that's how I ought to speak. He writes to the Ephesians, also from prison, and he prays and he says, I am an ambassador of Christ in chains. Pray for me. Pray that words might be given to me to open my mouth boldly. That I would speak boldly. That I would have perseverance. That I would not be timid and held back. But I would have boldness with clarity, is what Paul prays for. And Christian, the same should be your prayer. You want to proclaim the gospel boldly. I know you do. You look for ways to do it boldly. You listen and you, you try to hear people. How do they express the gospel? How do they, com- how do they explain it? I want to be bold. But you also want to be clear. It's how it should be spoken. It should be speaking, spoken boldly but clearly. And you might think 
Jake, that's easy for you to say. Well, let me be clear. It's not easy for me to say much. Pray constantly. When people ask, how can I pray for you in preaching? Pray for boldness and clarity. This is the directive to me of my life, how I must seek to proclaim the gospel. But Christian, it is not just me. You must proclaim the gospel. And you ought to pray to do so with boldness and clarity. And you could think that's too hard. That's too much. How am I supposed to get the education and the knowledge and the communication and the function with people to figure out how to live proclaiming the gospel? I'm so glad you thought of that. It is why the second point of Herald is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel, all of us. And so then we are therefore to function to equip the saints. We are to together as elders and members to use our gifts under the Spirit. Remember, He has called you by the divine plan of God. He has purposed you to be part of His body. And He has gifted you in the Spirit to function with one another. That you might be equipped for the ministry. That you might be able to. That you would grow in doing this. You're declared and demanded to do so. Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission. What is it? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That you are to go and you're to make disciples. You're to declare the truth of the gospel. But think about that making disciples. What does that mean? It means that disciples are called. Obviously the gospel calls us, but disciples are made. To be someone who follows Christ is made. Your life is to be progressively more and more glorifying to Him. If you look back at Hebrews 10, it says, what are we to do? We're to stir one another to love and good deeds and to encourage them. We are to help each other to prioritize the gospel as our life, and we are to help each other persevere in doing that. And so the church exists, first and foremost, for the church to be equipped to proclaim to the world. We have developed church models in our society that sees the church as the place where the gospel is proclaimed, not the place where the saints are equipped. And so many will say, and even in us, it's ingrained in us too to go, I have a friend I'm sharing with the gospel. I really hope he comes so he could hear Danny preach or hear Daniel preach or hear Jake preach. I'm just really hoping they can hear the truth of the gospel. Christian, the church is first and foremost to equip you as the saints that you might proclaim the gospel. We are not opposed. Our, our, our meeting at this point is public, right? We advertise it. And we say, hey, you're free to come and meet with us. That many of you gather here this morning. You don't regularly meet with us. We're okay with that. But we don't exist to have a public service for the community so that we can serve and encourage people in the community broadly. We exist to equip the church, to strengthen Christ's church. To be those who say, look, we want to be clear about the gospel in word and deed. And the church is the place where that happens. You are sharpened because you cut one another. Well, actually, maybe. And you're dull when you do it. I don't know. It didn't work. The illustration broke. You are strengthened because iron sharpens iron is where I was going. Uh, And together you sharpen one another that you might be clear and bold about the gospel. The times you're going to function, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have trouble with one another. It's, it's going to be difficult. But the church is not supposed to be somewhere where you just run and then you find some other place of difficulty. The church is to be what stabilizes you. So you're not tossed to and fro. Look at Ephesians 4, and we looked at it many, many weeks ago for many, many weeks. But Ephesians 4 declares that elders, shepherds, teachers, 
have been given for the grace of God, that we might have the authority of the apostles and prophets, that we might have the message of the evangelists, and we might have the function and shepherding of the church to grow in the unity and the knowledge of the Son, to be mature to the measure of the fullness of Christ. So your purpose, you want to be more mature, you want to declare the gospel, you want to be clear that your life is about Jesus. Those are good things. And it says he has given the church for that, that you would mature, that you would gain knowledge, that you would be full in Christ for his purpose. And then he gives, as he often does, the warning of neglect. Why should you do this? Because if you don't, this is the consequence. So we may not longer be tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine, carried about by every wind of doctrine. The church is to be a stabilizing force for you. It is interesting in God's design, this is what is stated. And in my own personal experience, I see this as what functions. Many people attend the same church for decades and never really commit. They're kind of tossed in and out of the church. And they tend to not grow. They, they look at others in the church and they go, it's too overwhelming. I'm, I'm not like you people. And so what do they do? They distance themselves from the church. Because it doesn't look like their life. It's more stable. It's more functional. It's more centered around Christ. And so they kind of step back because they're used to the waves. They're used to being tossed to and fro by all kinds of things. They're used to not having a clear and purposed, focused direction at Christ. They're used to kind of just judging every wave and always trying to figure out everything that's coming that they might live for Christ. But the church is to set the waves aside. It is to stabilize you, to clarify for you, to equip you to live in the ministry. To not let everything come and call you. Everything be a declaring factor to you. It is that you might hold fast to the word through the difficulty of life together. And what is the purpose of that? Well, I would say it is, again, the proclamation of the gospel. If you look at verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Rather speaking the truth in love. Rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up into him, the head, Christ. And he equips us. He has given us each part and purpose. And we live for that and in that. And so the church exists to herald the gospel and to equip the saints for the clarity of heralding the gospel in the function of their life and in the words of their life. Lastly, this morning, the church exists to reconcile relationships. The church exists to reconcile relationships. The first and foremost relationship that is reconciled in the church is what? Your relationship to God. That he has called you and he has reconciled you. That the king has declared you are his and you are no longer under the domain of darkness, but you are light in Christ. You have been freed from that. You are reconciled. But 2 Corinthians 5 17 through 21, which is included on page 6 of your handout, says that you are an ambassador in Christ. You, having been reconciled, now have what? A ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Does that mean you are to bring all people to find all of their problems, to figure out their problems and their problems so that those people can come together? No. Often in the church, this is confused. It is that we exist in the church for the unity of man. But that is an incomplete statement. We exist that all man might be unified under Christ. We exist to reconcile to God. 
And when man is reconciled to God, all earthly relationships start to be reconciled. If the whole earth bowed in submission to Christ, that he is supreme, he is above all things, the whole earth would strive to live out the one another's. They would strive to live with one another, to be patient with one another, to be hospitable to one another, to favor one over the other. But sometimes we skip the purpose, the unity of Christ, and we say we can bring unity to people. We can help them to be hospitable. We can help them to function. We can reconcile them together. They don't need to be reconciled together, and they never will be unless they are reconciled to God and humbled before him. They're confused about the war. They think they're standing in line to get a prize and they're pushing other people in line because they want to get there first. But man is awaiting judgment. Don't be distracted by the line to get there. Have clarity in what line you're in and seek today to be reconciled to God. You are waiting to meet God face to face and you will meet him as judge or savior. He will have his glory and he will be declared glorious in that. Christian, you live to reconcile relationships and that first and foremost is the relationship to God. Now, does that mean we rock around telling everyone, of course you guys fight, you're dirty, filthy sinners. That's what dirty, filthy sinners do. We're just waiting to see Jesus because he's good and merciful and loving. Fighters. No, clearly not. If you've been reconciled to God, you should be humbled. You should have a ministry of reconciliation. You should always be ready to give an account for the hope that's within you. When the world looks like war is on the brink, why do you have hope? Why does it appear that you feel like all things are under the control of a good and sovereign and faithful ruler who works all things to the good? Do you not understand what's going on in the world? I do. God is working all things for his glory. I don't get how right now. I don't understand it. I I don't look and see and go, clearly, this is the path. I know many people want to do that right now. They want to find the clear path. The clear path was the gospel. And he's communicated in my own life. When everything was at war within me, something happened. And he did something when it looked like nothing could come good from me. He called and saved me. And so you share the hope of the gospel. This is true, and you can have confidence in this because he's a reconciling God. When do you think things looked the worst in history? What time do you point to and say, oh, this is the worst point in history? Christian, let me affirm to you, you know the worst point in history. It is the day when the Romans, under the desires of the Jews, took the creator of all things in whom all things exist to the cross. They nailed him and murdered him. And he had done no wrong. The darkest hour of earth. And what did it accomplish? Your reconciliation to God. He saved you. He is the God who knows how to take the darkest of hours and to make them the brightest of days. That we can have hope. And so we live to reconcile relationships. First to the gospel. That means then we listen to him in all other things, right? And so, Christian, why do we fight? And why do we proclaim about human gender, male and female? Why do we stand for marriage between a man and a woman? Why do we defend the life of unborn children? 
Why do we do any of those things? Because he has been clear in his commands. He has been clear about who he is. He has been clear about what he did in designing the earth. He has been cleared about the value of people. He has been clear about gender. He has been clear about its purposes. Ephesians chapter 5 declares the relationship of marriage. It says that a woman is to submit to her husband and that a man is to love his Christ at, or love his wife rather as Christ loved the church. There's command for those relationships. How do we reconcile marriages? Well, marriages center on the gospel. It is to be a living picture. In the end of Ephesians chapter 5 it says that this relationship exists to declare the relationship of Christ and his church. How do we reconcile relationships between children and parents, between families? We trust in the fact that must be done, but it is because God has designed fathers to be a picture of him and children to be a picture of us dependent upon him. Why do we bring together people who come from different backgrounds and different priorities and different ideas? Because they are all running toward the same thing, Christ. And so we can lay aside all of the hindrances of our earthly cultures and say, we live first and foremost for the glory of God in all things. And so we seek to decipher with one another, how are we living for the glory of God? To have clarity, to listen to one another, to not expect everyone to conform to our image, but to expect that we will be conformed to the image of Christ by having unity and clarity together around living for the glory of God in all things by the proclamation of the gospel. I understand that these points I've made this morning are broad points. There's, I think in your heart, you could have very specific application of how you ought to live for these points. But I'm not giving you these points this morning as just a sermon to encourage you in how you ought to live. I am giving you these points to, to remind you if you are a member and to explain to you as you come and and listen and hear what we believe as a church. I want to encourage you, these documents are articulated not under the passion of preaching, uh, but in the clarity of print in our What You Teach statement. So this morning, you can look at the handout, you can look at what I've uh, prepared here for us in preaching this morning. Uh, to give you the truth and the passion behind what we have written. Uh, But please don't neglect, don't let my passion for preaching confuse your purpose for clarity in the gospel. And so look at the documents. See what we have expressed there. Think about, do I believe this is something I want to function in together? Do I believe I want this to be the broad direction of my life? To live for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel as a herald who proclaims it, as part of a church that lives not to be the aid to the world, but to equip the saints that they might be a light to the world. And a church that is first and foremost about the reconciliation of the gospel and longs to see all kinds of relationships reconciled to God and united in God. Are these things that incite desire and passion within you because you believe that they are true and you see them in the word of God? Then I would encourage you, as I did last week, to pursue membership. If you are not sure and and you are working through these things and, and you want to be wise and faithful, you've been with us a short time, I would encourage you, look at the documents and ask questions. So let me pray for us. We'll worship God in song and participate together in communion. 
Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you are not like man. Uh, When you set out a plan, it happens according to your timing. Uh, It happens as your will is, and it happens always for your glory. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust that you work all things for your glory. I pray you would give us wisdom and clarity uh, as we seek as a church to be reminded and and to reaffirm uh, how we have chosen to live under your grace and glory. I pray you would give grace to us, Lord, uh, in our efforts for that. I thank you, Father, that we earn nothing. Uh, And I thank you, you have given us by your spirit the ability to have effort for your glory. I pray you would bless our efforts, that your name would be praised. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.